When I retired, with lots of newfound available time, I enjoyed many travel opportunities. This podcast may encourage you to visit, revisit, or experience virtual armchair travel, learning about exciting new venues. Travel is an excellent vehicle for lifelong learning. Welcome to the What Travel Writers Say podcast. I'm Mike Keenan, your host, and today we examine the world-class city of Vancouver, British Columbia, always rated at the top of the world's best places to live. My wife and I love to visit Vancouver not only because it's a great tourist attraction, but also due to the fact that we have grandchildren living here. This podcast involves several trips, and I will include the hotels where we stayed. Big cities like to tout their chic neighborhoods to attract savvy tourists. With no freeways to disrupt matters like Toronto's much-maligned Gardner Expressway, Vancouver is one of the youngest cities in North America and blessed with several attractive districts. New York flouts Soho, Paris toasts the left bank, London admires Kensington, and Vancouver offers up Yale Town, with three major streets to amble about in a 12-block historic district, home to over 60 of the city's most stylish restaurants, boutiques, art galleries, spas, and cafes. Formerly a warehouse district with textile shops and train yards, this False Creek waterfront community experienced major revitalization, and now, trendy with a cosmopolitan atmosphere, Yale Town exudes an animated feel throughout the entire area, seemingly designed specifically for Vancouver's young, beautiful, and affluent, much like Toronto's Yorkville Hazelton Lanes. Again, to contrast with Toronto's Pearson, Vancouver's International Airport always impresses me with its striking array of First Nations totem poles and artifacts. And upon exit adjacent to the terminal, the convenient SkyTrain is a superb transit asset itself, thanks to the Winter Olympics. It's only 10 stops, or 20 minutes, to my strategically picked hotel, the Opus, in Yaletown, directly across from the Yaletown Roundhouse Station. How convenient is that? After checking in, I noticed False Creek from the balcony all part of the plan as I intend to visit nearby Granville Island via the Aqua Bus, the pickup dock, an easy four-minute walk away. My room features a king bed with comfy soft pillows and covers, and, how romantic, one can see through the curtained bathroom window. There's also a strange see-through picture of a gun hung on the purple wall. Opus is the only boutique hotel in Vancouver to receive the coveted Forbes four-star rating, and it was named in the top five trendiest hotels in the world by TripAdvisor. There are 96 suites themed with fictional characters to depict unique room styles. The hotel exudes a sophisticated feel, and perks abound such as free Wi-Fi, smart TV, Samsung Galaxy S3 mobile phones, and an iPad for optimum neighborhood exploration. 
We dine at nearby West Oak Restaurant, served by young Leo from Montreal, who has been in Vancouver for only four months and aims to be an actor. The food is good. I try the beet salad, varieties of beets, goat cheese, greens, followed by sable fish from the North Pacific above Haida Gwaii, risotto arborio rice, chickpeas, and asparagus, along with Philip's Kolsch lager from Victoria, B.C., and finally, dessert, a chocolate brownie with gelato. Yum! It doesn't get much better than that. In the morning, we visit the popular Café Artigiano Coffee House next door to Opus, and after a short walk, we arrive at Granville Island via the Aquabus. Granville Island, in the early 1900s, home to factories, plants, and sawmills, has seen a transformation similar to that of Yaletown. Now it's a local favorite and a huge draw for visitors, centered around Granville Island Public Market, a raucous horde of merchants selling seafood, fresh produce, cheese, and breads. A wonderful experience with enticing smells, flashes of color, and a tantalizing diversity of choice. Housed indoors, there are endless rows of stalls that feature fresh produce, gourmet foods, baked goods, seafood, and numerous other commercial vendors. One may sit at the waterfront and dream about lifestyles of the rich and famous, as yachts drift by expensive condos that seem to fill the azure sky. Or check out the two local breweries and even the local sake maker on the island. With professional and amateur theater and comedy companies located here, there is a live entertainment option on any given night. And just outside the public market, talented buskers perform a range of material from sleight of hand and balancing tricks to eclectic music, a great spot to nibble away on market delicacies while watching impromptu acts. The shops feature innovative arts and crafts, a variety of wares ranging from jewelry to souvenirs, clothing, and more. For the more adventurous, outfitters offer sea kayaking tours and rentals along with fishing charters, whale-watching tours, boat tours, and sailing opportunities. Granville Island and Yaletown, uniquely connected by the small, plucky aquabus and easy to access through public transit, both offer any tourist an exciting, fun-filled day, even when it rains, as it does quite often here in Vancouver. But like the locals, one gets used to it. On another visit, we take in Vancouver Stanley Park, named after Lord Stanley of NHL Stanley Cup hockey fame, a British politician and the sixth Governor General of Canada. A Canadian National Historic Site, it is one of the world's great urban parks and also one of Vancouver's main tourist attractions, despite a nasty storm a few years back that felled much of the ancient growth. Stanley Park remains an evergreen oasis of 400 hectares, a natural west coast rainforest with majestic cedar, hemlock, and fir that offer an alluring taste of nature's serenity. The temperate climb nourishes everything from palms to alpine novelties such as lichen and edelweiss. The city literally drips with green. However, in the park it's hard to believe that such a bustling city actually exists mere steps away. One may walk or cycle along the park's inviting seawall, a scenic 22-kilometer path 
that lines the waterfront, allow two to three hours for pedestrians and one hour for cyclists. We stroll and soon discover that this must be the most popular recreational area in the city, attracting casual visitors like us and hordes of exercise buffs divided into two clearly marked sections, one for walkers and joggers closest to the water and one for cyclists and inline skaters, the inside path. Starting from Coal Harbor, the seawall winds around Stanley Park along Sunset Beach and Falls Creek past the Burrard Street Bridge through Vanier Park and finishes off at Kitsilano Beach Park. We purposefully stay close to Stanley Park in a two-bedroom older apartment-type lodging with two baths and a large living and dining room with its own kitchen. But we are here to sample the menus of Stanley Park's two celebrity kitchens, the Tea House and the Fish House. Both restaurants conveniently within walking distance from our suite at the southern base of the park. In the morning, we hike over to English Bay for coffee and breakfast, then take the on-off trolley, Vancouver Trolley Company, to Vanier Park, where we visit the museum to idle away some time before Bard on the Beach's performance of Equivocation, a clever play that has Shakespeare coerced by his government to write a drama based upon the gunpowder plot to pit Catholic against Protestant, but which he cleverly turns into Macbeth. Celebrating its 27th season in 2016, Bard on the Beach is one of Canada's largest not-for-profit professional Shakespeare festivals, located in a superb waterfront setting, mountains in the background, running from June through September. A main stage theater tent was erected in 2011 with 733 seats, and the Douglas Campbell Theater tent seats 240. We have enjoyed several plays here in the past, the productions always first-rate. After a short walk back inside Stanley Park, we skip the aquarium and horse-drawn carriage ride. Our first meal is served at the fish house. The chef offers an appetizer of prawn, chorizo, and roasted red pepper, followed by crab cakes for me and roasted red pepper bisque soup with watercress and prawn for my spouse. Next, we both select the three fish medley of arctic char, ai tuna, and salmon. Of course, salmon is ubiquitous here, characteristically turning purple and red near the end of its life cycle, the initial form of currency employed by First Nations. For dessert, we share strawberry and pistachio ice cream made in-house. Wow, a delicious meal. The next evening, it's a much longer walk along the seawall at low tide just in time for a gorgeous sunset over English Bay, dotted with ships at anchor, waiting to unload myriad treasures. The Tea House restaurant, sheltered by towering trees, presents unobstructed, spectacular views. This Ferguson Park landmark has long been a Vancouver culinary favorite since opening as a summer tea room in the 1950s. The chef starts us off with smoked salmon on cucumber, scallop and shrimp, and we opt for Mediterranean salads. For the main dish, I select Alaskan halibut with veggies and new small potatoes, while my spouse orders sockeye salmon with broccolini asparagus, fresh potatoes, and lemon capers. For dessert, we share raspberry sorbet and white chocolate cheesecake with cherry compote. 
wonderful. Another exceptional dining experience, and a taxi ferries us back as it's pitch black outside, much too dark to walk. The respective chefs share interesting bios. Curtis Demian was born and raised in Saskatoon, participating in international hockey tournaments and often preparing meals for the entire team. He practiced and honed his craft at notable Vancouver eateries such as Coast, Langara Fishing Lodge, Social et Le Magasin, and the Century Plaza Hotel, completing his Red Seal in 2007. In 2012, he joined the Fish House as chef de cuisine and soon was promoted to executive chef. Annabelle Leslie grew up in Montreal exposed to culturally diverse cuisine, but it wasn't until she moved to the Caribbean that she tapped into her love of the culinary craft. After sailing to the Caribbean and Southwest Indies as chef on corporate yachts, she became executive chef at Cardero's restaurant in Coal Harbor, and 13 years later, executive chef at the Tea House in Stanley Park. The decor in both Stanley Park restaurants is warm, attractive, and romantic. Wonderful settings for special evenings. The service, terrific. And the fresh ocean food, bon appetit. Vancouver is a terrific city for walking, as there are many cultural experiences to soak up. On another visit, we devoted our Culture Day to trips to the Vancouver Art Gallery, the Dr. Sun Yat-sen Classical Chinese Gardens, and the Orpheum Theatre, the latter featuring a Claude Debussy opera. The Emily Carr exhibit at the Vancouver Art Gallery never fails to mesmerize me. I start on the fourth floor with Emily, then work my way down. I enjoy Carr's brooding, dark green nature, and I stared at her large raven perched on a wooden stump, head and body tilting upwards, wings folded in at the sides, like those small-town park exhibits of CF-100 Canadian fighter jets. In the oil's background, Carr deftly placed a fir tree with an embracing canopy, a pilgrim in a hood and cloak, a neat touch. The classical Chinese gardens was a treat. Its layout features the concepts of balance, the old male-female yin-yang, hard-smooth, unified concept of the world with flowery windows for the ladies and geometric patterns for the men. The water exudes a jade-green look, an important concept with lilies the only flower present so not to draw too much attention such that every item is fully appreciated. The stones inlaid in the floor tiles and all of the rocks arrived from China. No nails or screws used in the construction. Cascading water adds a sense of serenity to wonderful views created from every angle. I took a lot of photos. The Orpheum, one of those large, ornate theaters, sits downtown, reminding me of the ornate Shays Buffalo, classic buildings for cities to showcase artistic talent. The French lyrics of the opera were translated on a screen high above the stage. We enjoyed terrific seats two rows back on the aisle in the balcony, unobstructed for the first act, but two leaners appeared in front of us. Suffering from ADD, they constantly bounced on the edge of their seats. Our view obscured. Fortunately, we were able to move to nearby empty seats. Much to my surprise, there was no operatic fat lady. All three women who sang received a bouquet of flowers at the end 
an appreciative fan repeatedly shouted, Bravo! Bravo! The music was geared to strings with the winds and brass not getting much of a workout. The voices were rich, especially one bass who was a little skinny guy compared to the tenor, large and bald, resembling Jesse Ventura, which gave me a start given that this was opera, not wrestling. The orchestra was large, two harps, eight cellos, at least 36 violins and violas, and the usual assembly of winds and bass. The theater was packed with wealthy-looking 30- and 40-somethings, predominantly wasp, a surprise given Vancouver's Asian demographics. When we exited, Granville Street was buzzing, full of exuberant young people lined up to enter bars. Sadly, it appears to be illegal to be 60 years old in downtown Vancouver. Cops patrol the streets, collect seniors, and whisk them off to Surrey or place them on ferries bound for Victoria. All I saw were attractive, young, tanned, healthy-looking people looking like they all work at Mountain Equipment Co-op selling kayaks, tents, and hiking boots. I've never seen so many firm tummies, tight butts, and parabolic tops. Vancouver nightlife is enough to coerce one into a gym to perform a hundred sit-ups. So much for culture. At our hotel, I expect to see Marcello Mastroianni and Anita Ekberg in the lobby. We seem to be in the Vancouver version of Federico Fellini's La Dolce Vita, comfortably ensconced in the executive suite with a king-size bed. Large work desk, a living room with a double sofa, separated by heavy sliding doors, master environmental controls, two 50-inch LCD TVs, mini refrigerator, and many other lavish amenities. Our full marble washroom features a large soaker tub, double sinks, and heated floors. Vancouver's independent, Canadian-owned and operated St. Regis Hotel boasts a complete renovation that has advanced this heritage building to the highest standard of comfort and finish. It also conforms to real estate rule number one, location, location, location. Situated in the center of downtown, adjacent to efficient SkyTrain service, it provides easy access to both YVR and Vancouver's top tourist draws. With an all-inclusive room rate, the hotel offers many extras that include complimentary full breakfast, which we share with a young couple from Aberdeen, Scotland, who were skiing at Whistler and wanted to take a break and see the city, choosing the St. Regis because it's centrally located, close to everything. High-speed internet, free local and worldwide long distance, Fiji bottled water, Steve Nash Sports Club passes and business center access, and we also happily inhabit an art gallery featuring the work of Hilario Gutierrez, Linda Murphy, Simon Addyman, Liz Jardine, and Jody Mass, Canadian, American, and British, with a range of heritage from Native and Hispanic to Asian and Irish. Their works decorated every floor and each staircase landing of the hotel. The St. Regis enjoys a storied past. With the start of the Second World War in 1939, the shipbuilding and lumber industry took off, and the hotel assumed the role of Vancouver's Sportsman Hotel, hosting such NHL stars as Stanley Cup winner and New York Ranger coach Muzz Patrick, along with Maurice the Rocket Richard. Coley Hall, the owner, decided that he needed a hockey team, So for the 1943-44 PCHL season, 
the Vancouver St. Regis took the ice. The St. Regis Hotels was Cyclone Taylor's last team. He played on the first sports team in history to wear numbers on their jerseys and led Vancouver when it last won a Stanley Cup in 1915. Inspired by the ubiquitous hotel art, he decided to take in, yet again, an Emily Carr exhibit, Deep Forest, at the nearby Vancouver Art Gallery, located at Robson Square. Senior curator Ian M. Fong is proud of the richest collection of Emily Carr works in the world, particularly her forest paintings from the 1930s, canvases and works in a medium she began using during that period, oil on paper. Her mystical images depict the coastal forest landscape, and she reminds me of another favorite, Branford's Lauren Harris of the famed Canadian Group of Seven. Her 1934 journal reads, They, meaning the trees, are profoundly solemn, yet upliftingly joyous. You can find everything in them that you look for, showing how absolutely full of truth, how full of reality the juice and essence of life are in them. They teem with life, growth, expansion. Carr was born in Victoria, British Columbia in 1871, the year British Columbia joined Canada. She attended the San Francisco Art Institute for two years, 1890 to 1892, before returning to Victoria. In 1899, she traveled to London, where she studied at the Westminster School of Art. One of our favorite places to visit, we thoroughly enjoyed the car exhibit, as well as the other works in the Vancouver Art Gallery. Back at the hotel, we stopped by the St. Regis Bar and Grill next door, and we note that for a century-old icon, the hotel is remarkably up-to-date, with electric vehicle charging stations in its underground parking that would accommodate VIP Tesla owners such as Morgan Freeman, Demi Moore, Cameron Diaz, Don Cheadle, Steven Spielberg, Will Smith, James Cameron, and many other notables from nearby Hollywood. Yes, la dolce vita, indeed. For our final few days, we are located on the Century Plaza Hotel and Spa's corporate 27th floor, the King Studio offering approximately 400 square feet of living space and exquisite panoramic views of Vancouver, its inlets and mountains. In fact, this morning we await to the spectacular view of 13 cargo ships anchored serenely in English Bay. It's a great start to one's day. Our room includes a kitchenette, individually controlled air conditioning, which takes me some practice to figure out, spa binge organic products, which are easier to manage, an iron ironing board, hair dryer, coffee, and tea, all of which I need no assistance with. There's complimentary high-speed internet and local telephone calls. Pets are welcome, but we do not see any. The spa is highly regarded, and there is an indoor pool and steam room. Overnight parking is available at $17 plus taxes. Just off the lobby in Beyond Coffee, a conventionally located coffee house, Matthew Lindman, Director of Sales, and I chat about the city and this hotel, which I have come to think just might be the friendliest hotel I've ever stayed in. Staff at every level engages one in pleasant conversation that appears natural and neighborly. The concierge is attentive and helpful, perpetually alert in the lobby to lend a hand or provide an enthusiastic report about Vancouver, embarking on a climate record with 14 straight joyful days without rain. 
housekeeping personnel's smile and genuinely ask you if you are enjoying your stay. Matthew helps explain this personal service ethos, and he says it's due to the hotel being owned by the same family, Kuchia, for the past 40 years. He brings his Sony DSL camera upon learning that I'm a photographer, and we merrily exchange tips on software. Matthew acknowledges that one of my favorite comedy films, Best in Show, was filmed in part at the hotel roughly 15 years ago. He also reminds me that the first Rambo movie was filmed in nearby Hope, B.C. The Century Plaza Hotel and Spa commands an excellent downtown location. For example, we are within easy walking distance to Robson Square. But Matthew reminds me that although locations may be a key factor, they never forgot that it's service that keeps people coming back. I ask for his top three tourist attractions and he quickly responds. Grouse Mountain. They offer free bus service for its stunning visuals, often with magical fog layered between the slopes and the city, Stanley Park, and the Art Gallery. I'm guessing that his camera has seen lots of action in all of those attractive settings. Tonight, however, I'm treating my five-year-old grandson to a hockey game. The NHL Canucks was my first choice. City signage everywhere proclaims we are all Canucks, along with action shots of the players but I discovered that they have been sold out for the past three years, and I don't want to hassle with scalpers who take $125 tickets and, like Vancouver real estate, transform them into soaring amounts. I choose the Vancouver Giants versus the Lethbridge Hurricanes, both in the WHL, Western Hockey League, part of the Canadian Hockey League, CHL, along with the Ontario Hockey League, OHL, and Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, QMJHL. At season's end, the CHL hosts the MasterCard Memorial Cup. Best tickets tonight, Golds, cost a mere $23.50, along with a $10 fee to park at the Pacific Coliseum, capacity 7,500, where the Canucks formerly played. The Coliseum is part of the Pacific National Exhibition, Vancouver's answer to the Toronto CNE. There's a good crowd tonight with a pregame ceremony honoring giant coach Don Hay, who recently picked up his 600th win. Under Hay, the Giants have been a perennial WHL powerhouse. He has won the Memorial Cup three times as head coach. I learned that Gordie Howe, Pat Quinn, and Michael Buble are three of seven giant co-owners, and that Cody Franson, Jonathan Blom, Evander Kane, and Milan Lucic, all prominent NHL players, our former Giants. My grandson William is most thrilled by the free Goldie picture distributed to fans upon entry. The giant mascot, a blimp that floats through the air inside the arena, often assuming strange angles, the two Zambonis that clean the ice, the Jeep vehicle in its gun that shoots t-shirts into the stands, the video clock timer scorer, the show's wildly dancing, cheering fans captured by roaming cameras, the five unanswered goals in two periods scored by the Giants, each resulting in high fives between us, the crushing body checks against the boards, and of course, popcorn during the game, as well as pizza pregame. Is pepperoni eaten separately in some bizarre pregame ritual? It's great evening entertainment, something we must do again. 
Late in the evening, my spouse and I sit by the fireplace in the hotel's snug beyond restaurant and lounge, and we sip Red Truck Ale, a local favorite. It's been a wonderful morning and evening, and yes, indeed, we would happily visit Vancouver again. If you would like to read my published travel articles about this city and the places visited, check out my website, whattravelwriterssay.com. If you would like to view countless pictures taken during these visits, visit my Pinterest boards at pinterest.com backslash mustang6648 backslash. Once again, my website is located at whattravelwritersay.com and my photos are located at pinterest.com backslash mustang6648 backslash. We conclude each podcast with an appropriate travel quote. Today it's from humorist Dave Barry who said, Flying from the U.S. to Tokyo takes approximately as long as law school. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, contact me at mjk6648 at gmail.com. That's mjk6648 at gmail.com. Happy travels and tune in next week for another What Travel Writers Say podcast.